everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello again. Welcome to the Ideology Podcast. Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, back from a four-week hiatus for a summer break. And uh, we're excited to jump back into season two. Season one was a lot of fun to dive into and appreciate uh, your listenership. So many of you corresponding with us. It's been great to develop these uh, relationships and to dialogue about these important topics. But before we dive in, Drew, you've been on a 6,000 mile west, uh, not west coast, but western United States road trip. Did you you guys get refreshed in the midst of traveling so uh, such uh, long distances? Yeah, four kids in an RV for five weeks. I know met several of you on the road, and we had an awesome time. It was quite the adventure. Had three tire blowouts, um, drove through a wildfire, and all the other makings of a wonderful family trip. But it was it was a blast. It was refreshing, and I'm excited to get back in on the podcast. Now we're going to jump into today's episode here in a moment. But before I do, Mick, you actually launched a second podcast, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more of what it's about and how we can find it. Yeah, it's great. It's called Meditations, and actually it's been a thought for about, gosh, maybe four or five years as I have meditated on Scripture, just my own personal devotional life, and and then brought some of those practices into the training context uh, with my work and speaking, and have received good feedback in the past from these kind of meditative exercises and reflective contemplative exercises. And so decided to turn it into a podcast, and it's uh, it's been a fun venture for me personally and already getting great feedback on it. So it's called Meditations. It's on all the, med- uh, all the major podcast platforms and probably easiest to find it if you search uh, my name uh, with the word Meditations, uh, Mick Murray. Uh, but yeah, I hope it is a, uh, a blessing and a tool modeling how to kind of slowly, contemplatively reflect on the scriptures. Uh, how often do you release new episodes? Yeah, right now I'm trying to do two a week, actually, because they're short. They're kind of mini podcasts, 6 to 11, 12 minutes or so. I don't know if I can keep that pace up of two a week, but for, certainly this summer I've got the bandwidth to get some content out there. And do you have any recommendations on how to best engage with it? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. So far, as I've gotten some feedback, I have one family, they said that they listen to it together as a family as they are winding down for the evening. I definitely think, you know, it's a a companion to a kind of a a quiet devotional type of setting. I think the, you know, the, the gym might be difficult to engage adequately with the content, but yeah, any, any kind of slow, quiet, uh, contemplative setting would be fantastic. So you can listen to Ideology at the gym or in your car and listen to meditations when you are at your house. There you go. And we've got your day taken care of. Got you covered. Awesome. Well, hey, I'm super excited about it. And make sure everybody uh, get on this week and check it out. Meditations, and you can search Mick Murray. Awesome. So today we are going to start off season two by looking at ethics. And as always, uh, Drew is, is primarily driving the content here. I'll just say by way of introduction, this is a very hot button issue in our culture today. I think ethics is largely misunderstood. I was actually just looking up, I I think words are important, and the Oxford Dictionary defines ethics as the moral principles that govern a person's behavior. You start talking about morality today, 
And you're going to have, depending upon how many people are in the room, you're going to have that many different understandings of morality, even among the church and among the people of God. There has become kind of some muddy definitions, some some misguided understandings of what we mean by morality and ethics. And so today is just an attempt to, from a high level, start to parse out, you know, how did we get to where we are? How can we as the church, the people of God, move forward with clarity when it comes to ethics, the moral principles that guide our behavior, our conduct in society. So Drew, why don't you kind of take us in, uh, start to uh, unpack the idea of ethics. Uh, so where we've gone in this podcast, you know, since the beginning is is recognizing that there's no such thing as a neutral belief system and that everybody lives within some kind of framework. And you can call that a religious belief. You can call that a belief system. You can call that a social imaginary. I mean, you know, pick, pick your name or your title for it. But this is how we interpret the world, and these belief systems are social. So there's something that it's not just I don't get invent one for myself, but I receive one from my social environment, and that affects how I view a lot of things. And one of the major things that that affects is my understanding of morals and ethics. And so another way of saying that is the way that you view morality and ethics is directly tied to your broader belief system, and everybody lives within a belief system. The challenge is that we live in a very pluralistic society, but there has to be some kind of cohesion that pulls us all together, and there's a lot of change going on right now. So you really see this clash when it comes to how we understand ethics. Uh, One way to look at this is in our language. And so I'll pick a word. I'll pick the word good. And the word good, it's an evocative word. Like, I want to pursue the good. You'll see T-shirts like, I want to do good. And who's going to argue with that? Um, nobody's going to say that they don't want the good, I hope. Or, you know, we even talk about the common good. You know, so we use this word good a lot, and I hear it referenced a lot. But we actually need to take a step back and say, what does good actually mean? And then the bigger question is, who defines good? And that's where all of a sudden we, we start to have some issues. And so there's this implicit understanding that the word good has a fixed range of meaning. But I'd argue that it actually doesn't. And so, you know, we build all kinds of social norms around this concept of good. And as long as we all agree on what is good, then those social norms make sense. But if we don't agree on what is good, then we're going to have some type of class uh, clash. And so, you know, the converse is also true that if we agree on what is good, there's also some type of agreement on what is bad. And typically what is bad is ostracized, excluded, even punished. And, and so you can start to see, you know, pick, there's a lot of words like that, true, good, right, love, justice, all of these words have a range of meaning. And um, we have to ask the question, where do we derive that, that meaning? And, and by way of example, just taking that word good, you know, thinking back to the early 20th century in America, eugenics was considered a good practice or, you know, obviously 1930s, 1940s, Germany, the Aryan race, the dominance of the Aryan race was considered good by the populace. And and the good is a slippery slope if you don't have a, a concrete set or a concrete origin from which notions of good arise. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. And, you know, what's, what is difficult with this, uh, somebody I'm going to reference several times today is a scholar named Alistair McIntyre. And he's written a book called After Virtue, which really dives, dives into this topic. And uh, I'm going to reference him in a coming episode as well on a different topic. And um, what he talks about is that the only way to really evaluate your own culture is you have to be able to step outside of it a little bit. And another way of saying that is if we were in a homogenous culture where everybody believed relatively similar, we wouldn't be having this conversation because we wouldn't, in a way, we wouldn't even be able to see outside of our own culture. 
But where we're in the situation we're in today, where we actually have multiple different belief systems in tension together, all of a sudden it forces us to evaluate these type of things. And so there's certainly historic examples where you see all kinds of horrific practices because the, these topics um, got twisted in all kinds of different directions. I, I'd say in our situation, what we have is a little unique in that we actually have multiple, multiple different belief systems stacked on top of each other, but we're all using the same terminology. And we're trying to have dialogue in the public square using words, but the words we're using mean different things. And even though, you know, at one level, there's things that we all probably do want in common, and there's probably another range of things that we all agree are problems, our language fails us because um, language is tied to our belief systems. And so you, you can kind of start to see a little bit of, of where some of these conflicts are going to arise. And if you pay attention to it, you'll notice it occurring really frequently, especially in any kind of public discourse. So on that note, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of Christians today, a lot of people in the church would look at what's going on in our nation and make the case that America is becoming increasingly amoral. But you happen to disagree with that, that idea, don't you? Yeah, uh, 100%. I don't think America is amoral. I think actually right now the United States is very moral. And if you notice, there's a lot of moral language being used in a lot of different ways. There, there are a lot of people who have transgressed a moral standard, and fairly or not, you know, I think in some of this, uh, some of this is actually probably healthy, and some of it's probably not. But people who've transgressed different moral standards are instantly losing their job um, or losing their public platform. You see this a lot of. There's a lot of focus in companies and corporations right now for what they perceive to be moral behavior, and so if you if you start to analyze it, there, there is actually a very intense focus on morality. And so I think what people who, you know, if you grew up in a Christian context and and there is a pretty rapid cultural change going on, so I think what people are picking up on is not that America is becoming amoral, but that the moral center of gravity has shifted from one belief system to another. And so another way of looking at that is, you know, I've advocated multiple times on this podcast, is if we can understand secularism as its own distinct belief system, it really helps to make sense for a lot of what we're experiencing right now on a social level. And uh, like any belief system, uh, belief systems tend to be associated with some type of moral system. And so the moral system of secularism has distinction from the moral system of Christianity. And I think a lot of what we see culturally makes a ton of sense um, based on the moral beliefs of secularism. And so people are following their own belief system to some of its logical ends, including what morality looks like in public. And for a person who grew up in a culturally Christian society, and that's kind of the, your moral frame, it's shocking because you see things that your whole life you considered to be immoral that are now celebrated, and there's things that you used to celebrate that are now considered immoral. And so, of course, there's all, any number of emotions associated with that. But it doesn't mean it's not—it doesn't mean that our society is immoral. It, really, what we're looking at here is a, a new belief system that's taken root, and this is one of the symptoms of it. And not just celebrated, not just a, a new brand of morality, if you will, celebrated, but but what we've observed is that, you know, heretics or, or dissidents, anybody who dissents from the new morality is is banned as a heretic, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you use religious language, you know, I would say societies throughout history, whether Christian or not, punish heretics, um, apostates are kicked out of the public square. You know, you kind of start putting some religious language on it, and I see a lot of those same traits that are happening in our society today. And, and I use the word near-fundamentalist because there are behaviors 
that, you know, similar to maybe some of the fundamentalist behaviors we saw in cultural Christian circles going back in the 80s, especially, um, I see a lot of those same exact tactics being used now, but they're just being used by people in a secular belief system. And of course, there's still Christians that are doing some of those same behaviors. So that's where this gets really complicated. But to me, what it speaks to is kind of this near fundamentalist version of morality and that's really seeking to heavily enforce a vision on the society as a whole. Yeah, and I think where our concern is, is where, as we look around, too many Christians are adopting this secular morality and and, and many times are unaware that they're even adopting a secular version of morality. And by way of leading into this kind of idea, I'll use an illustration that I've been using recently as I've been discussing this with people is is that uh, I see kind of like two trees planted side by side and in one tree has its roots in the Judeo-Christian worldview and it, its trunk kind of grows up out of those traditions and that version of morality and then branches and flowers out into all these different expressions and nuances in society. Right next to it, you have a tree that has its roots in secular humanism and all of the tenets that we you know unpacked last season. And then the trunk that grows up out of those philosophies, and then it branches out into all these different areas of society. And there are some branches that overlap, let's say, you know, to use an example like uh, social justice, where you have a social justice that arises out of Christian virtue. And then you have this, this kind of what, what I would, you know, this might be contentious, but uh, put forward as a counterfeit social justice that arises out of secular humanism, because actually I don't think any true social justice arises logically out of humanism, but that's a conversation for another time. But the point is that where these branches overlap, I think some Christians have inadvertently crossed over from a Christian origin into this secular origin and now are starting to progress down the trunk and into the roots and have made a transfer inadvertently using Christian language, using what is ostensibly Christian virtue and Christian ethic, but actually it's it's arising out of a secular philosophy that has massive implications when you branch out further away from the Christian ethic. And I think it's leading a lot of people down a, a difficult and potentially destructive path. Yes, I love that illustration. I think that's a really helpful picture for people. And I'll, I'm going to just develop it a little bit. I think one of the challenges with the morality of secularism is that it is entirely originated within Christianity. So Western secularism secularism is a religious development out of Christianity and um, still holds a lot in common and I would say owes much of its morality to the foundation it received in the church. And I, I think you could maybe look at this from the outside in and view it almost as a sect or a, as a um, you know heterodox sect of Christianity. And so if you take the tree analogy, what that means is the trees are pretty close together. So the overlap between branches are more extensive between these two belief systems. If we're talking about historic Christianity and Hinduism, those trees are more spaced apart. So there still probably is some overlap, but not nearly as much, which when it comes to things like morals, makes it actually a lot easier to to sift through it because you can see you know, these, these two trees are pretty far apart, and I can have a lot of respect and love for people who think differently, but fundamentally, that the logic, the internal logic of my belief puts me in a very different place. But that's the difficulty with Western secularism is how much it owes to Christianity. And so here's what, here's, you know, getting, pulling this into to real life. I 100% think there are some very fair critiques of Christianity 
that have come to light in recent years. And, you know, if you know me, I am I can be very, uh, what's the right word for it? I can, I can be pretty strong in my concern about cultural Christianity and um, a lot of the belief systems that originated out of this uh, Western cultural Christian framework that I, I think has not served the church well in the long run and I think has contributed to any number of problems. And, you know, I think what you see with secularism is pointing out many of those different places, our complicity on issues of racial inequality or poverty, to, to name a few. And so, you know, those are fair critiques. And sometimes, you know, when you interact with people who believe different, they can point things out where there's a very healthy critique. And so I am not seeking to defend cultural Christianity nor whitewash places where cultural Christianity has not lived up to what it's called to be. The question from an ethical standpoint, though, is where do we where do we base and work through the critique? And to your point, Mick, what we're seeing happen and what I'm noticing happen is people are looking at the internal logic of a confessional Christian belief system and ethical system that you know is in Scripture and in the tradition, and they're looking at that, and you know they're they're evaluating practice. So you're you're looking at that, then you're looking at the actual practice, and so you can take uh, we'll take an example of people in extreme poverty in the church who aren't receiving any support. So that should be a scandal to the church. Like as a church, we need to be considering how we care for the poor. And that's well attested in scripture. That's also well attested in church history that that's always been a concern. So I think it's entirely fair for us to critique our own practice in light of our scripture and the tradition and ultimately the leadership of the spirit. The difficulty that we're wanting to point out today is where people are are taking a critique and they're actually critiquing Christian practice from the position of secular morality. And that's what we're observing happen a whole lot more. And so I might be critiquing the church's involvement in, with those who are extremely poor, but I start to do that from some other framework. And at that point, really what I've done is I've jumped belief systems and I've introduced something alien. And so you have two groups. You have some groups that are doing that very intentionally. They've converted to secularism and now they're using their new belief system to call into question what they used to believe. And of course, you know, we've addressed that. That's a different topic. What I'm trying to shed light on in today's episode is where Christians are doing that without realizing it. They're taking the talking points they get on the internet or on TV, or they're just not critically evaluating their own critique and, and, and doing so from a framework within I mean, under the authority of a, kind of a confessional Christian belief system. Right. So you're suggesting that if you're basing your moral judgments on news bites, social media, then you're probably partaking in this this form of kind of misguided morality, misguided ethical judgments. I actually started paying attention over the past year as there's a lot of ethical issues that have been raised, both politically, uh, COVID response, of course, race relations, you know, any number of of issues that have come to the surface that are all legit issues. So please hear me. I, I believe these are important conversations for us to have and prayerfully reflect and evaluate. But what I've started noticing, you know, as people post stuff and articles are written and and all of that, just taking a time, taking the time to really analyze what you shared, Mick. I, you know, almost always I'll read something and there's an element of it that resonates with me, where somebody's pointing out something, some flaw, some problem, but then trying to identify what are they presenting as the overall framework by which they're evaluating that problem, and then what's the solution. And something I, I've seen happen for a lot of people is their eyes will be open to a problem or there'll be something that is rightfully called attention to that needs to be addressed. And, you know, it's, and if you've ever had that, and hopefully we all have at certain points of our life, it's like a light goes off in your head, you know, and that's, that's a good thing. But then what happens is 
everything else that went with the conversation suddenly kind of gets swept in, into that. So somebody might call attention to a problem in society that doesn't mean that their overall analysis is right, even if they were correct in identifying a problem. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're proposing a solution that's right and that the solution they're proposing is in light with uh, my overall belief system. And those are all things that I have to read and listen for. You know, I think that's something where we can, all of us could probably stand to grow as, as a bit more critical readers. And I think there's a degree of cynicism. And I, I, I want to use this word carefully because I think, of course, cynicism is a negative attribute. But I, I think it is worth us all noting that typically by the time an article gets written and we're repeating it, almost all of that originated at some PR firm in New York City where people are sitting around a conference table and trying to generate talking points to present and give traction to a narrative that typically is associated with some kind of political goal or something else and on either side, you know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that tends to dominate it. What's get clicks, what advances somebody's talking point, what, you know, this is not stuff that just kind of happens. It's stuff that is carefully thought through and presented. And I think we all need to be a little bit more careful to not just blindly follow the latest thing, but be able to pause and especially as Christians, evaluate, is this really making sense of the world? Is this really speaking to something? Or am I just getting carried away in somebody else's agenda? And almost anything is going to have some truth. And so it doesn't mean that you have to reject everything. It just means we need to be a little more cautious in what we consume and a little bit more evaluative in how we understand it. So if I if I hear you correctly, you're saying to be critical without a critical spirit, to think critically, maybe that's a better way to say it, without having a critical spirit that that we don't have to be simply binary and this is all true or all false and this is all true or all false, but be able to think with a multi-frame about the world around us and to diagnose the issue, to think deeply about what's being presented, to consider the ethical foundation for why it's even an issue in the first place. And as a believer, to go back to the biblical ethical foundation for how would or should we approach this as followers of Jesus and then review the call to action, think critically about the call to action through that, that framework, that biblically ethical framework. Is that, is that accurate or is that fair? Uh, it's much better presented than how I said it. So yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'd, I'd say pay attention when you come across things like this uh, that are often evocative and so they evoke emotion within you. And I'd, I'd pay attention. What's the emotion it's evoking and why? And even take the time to trace that back to, to our belief system and then being aware of where there might be some contrast. So let's add a a layer of complexity to all of this. And I know today's episode, we are kind of diving in deep, and next week we'll pick up the same topic, and I'll try to get a little bit more practical of some specific examples of this. But I want to add a layer of complexity that I've alluded to already and we've certainly talked about before, and that's that we're in the midst of a massive cultural transition in which secularism is ascendant, it's growing, and confessional Christianity is being moved more to the margins. And I don't want to say marginalized. Of course, confessional Christianity still has a lot of cultural power in the United States, but the the position it had at one point to advocate morals is, I think, being replaced and has been replaced by secularism as a belief system. So I'm saying that as an observation, not even fully as a lament. I've written about this in my book, The Gospel According to Culture, and I, I think when the church has had control of cultural power and morality, that those have not often been the best times of the church. And so I I don't make that observation from a place of hopelessness. In fact, I think there's something about the church 
not having all the controls of power that can be very healthy. And, and so don't hear that observation as, as a call to us somehow taking back over all the cultural institutions. And that's, that's not where I'm going with all of this. And I recognize where people have gone and there can be some reluctance to, to listen to that observation. So I'm instead just viewing it purely as a cultural observation of where we are as a society, because I, I think if, if we don't understand what's happening, it's very hard for us to evaluate how to respond. And so we've, you know, I, I've advocated in the past and continue to advocate. I think the church, being faithful to be the church is what's really important. And I think there are times where we try to seize the reins of power, it almost always leads to deep compromise. And I think actually some of what we're running into society today is where the church has been compromised and we're having to deal with the fallout from that, that sin. So just to make sure people are clear and understanding why I make this observation, but that all being the case, I, I do think that that is absolutely the reality. And so it's not just that we have a pluralistic society, but there's actually a shift occurring of who is able to set the moral narrative and who's able to have control over what moral discourse looks like has shifted in a remarkably fast timeline. You know, for sure within the last 60 years, but even probably more deeply within the last 30, you could pinpoint any number of examples to, to show why that is the case. And so that's disorienting for all of us. And the idea of being moral you know, what it meant to be a moral person 30 years ago in the eyes of society at large is now actually very different from what it means to be a moral person. And I think for us as Christians, that's going to cause us to have to dig really deep, maybe ask the question, who decides if I am moral and who decides if I am living rightly? In the past, there was probably, even if society was entirely hypocritical and there was all kinds of sin and everything, there was still, you know, when I interacted in the, in the public square, if I was living according to some version of Christian morality and a well-respected church member, that would also correspond with some degree of status and honor in society, whereas today that's no longer the case, and that, that's going to have to cause us to really re- reevaluate our understanding of morality. So that's, that's just the dynamic that we're in. Uh, whether it's a good thing, bad thing, fairly, unfairly, you know, we don't have to make that judgment at the moment, but we do need to be aware of what's going on because that then becomes critically important in the background for us to be able to evaluate what ethics needs to look like. So this ends up becoming a pretty central thesis of several different books that are out there today. And in a couple weeks, uh, we're gonna really go into some of these books and look at what they're trying to say and what we can learn about how did this change occur, which I think is a great topic for us. So you can be on the lookout for that episode. One of them that I mentioned is the book After Virtue. And the essential thesis of uh, McIntyre, Alistair McIntyre, what he is communicating is that our society, with all of the shifts that have occurred in our belief system, the grounding for our understanding of what is moral no longer has any form of stability, which makes it really hard for us to have any kind of ethical discourse. And he's going to go on to say that a lot of the morals in our society are still influenced by the ghost of the Christian heritage. Even though people have let go of the Christian heritage, they still have kind of these lingering understanding of morals, but the morals that are lingering are no longer anchored in anything. And that's created all number, any number of problems because it's not just that morals have shifted, but we actually don't have any way to ground the morals anymore. And something that you mentioned, Mick, and this would be McIntyre, would, would agree is that the belief system that shapes the way that secularism views the world does not lend itself to morals very naturally. People try, 
But what McIntyre would point out is what they're trying to do is justifying the Christian moral view because they, they recognize that if you lose the Christian morals, um, it's going to create any number of upheavals in society, but the belief system doesn't have any way to reinforce the Christian morals, and so you're kind of stuck a little bit. And um, what he would point out is a lot of the angry discourse we see, and this is, a, this is a book that was written in the 80s, so he saw a lot of this back then, a lot of the angry discourse we see is absent any agreed-upon standard of truth. All we're left with is the ability to argument, and he uses the word shrill. You know, it's like this shrill arguing about morals, whereas in past societies, they never questioned the morals. It just is what was, so there was no reason to argue about it. Now, we, we don't have any foundation anymore, and it, it really creates problems for us culturally. So, you know, McIntyre goes on to explain that the morals we hold today are at some degree based in our past beliefs, which means past Christian beliefs. But because these beliefs are no longer accepted in the public square, the morals no longer make sense. And he would point out that Nietzsche is the first to really fully grasp this, that there's no right and there's no wrong. What you have instead is power. And whoever has power gets to determine what is right and wrong. And so, you know, the, the absence of an external standard, that's, that's what we're left with. And you have to strongly assert your moral vision because there's nothing, there's nothing beyond that. There's no universal truth. There's no foundation. There's no anything. And so it's really whoever can yell the loudest and whoever can have the most power is the one who gets to dictate the moral framework that the world operates within. And that is part of it, uh, of maybe the intensity of even some of these conversations, because the stakes are tremendously high. If one group can win out, they really get to set the framework morally. And, you know, we're going to unpack this next week, and this will actually well, we'll kind of round out this episode for today and get into some of the implications for it. And I'll just end on this note as a Christian. Um, the great thing is I do believe there's an external foundation for morals, and I, I don't feel like we're left just to power and that's the wonderful thing for those of us who follow Jesus, is we have an alternative to that way of thinking. But our society is is predicated, or um, at least to some extent, on, on some of these other influences, and it does then affect the conversations that we're able to have and what we come across as, as we all read and watch and listen. And it's shaped by a lot of these different forces. So I think the task for us as Christians is how do we really diagnose what we're seeing in culture? And how do we recognize maybe places where we as Christians have not lived up to our, our own faith and to the, the standards and the teachings of Jesus? And those become great places of repentance and prayer and change. But how do we do that in a way that doesn't buy into this other narrative that's entirely based in power or you know, these other premises? And ultimately, I think what we're seeing in our society today is that the lack of foundation creates tremendous problems and emptiness and hopelessness. And I'll say for, for myself, as I watch what goes on in the world, I recognize we have a critical task of the church to present an alternative, to present something different, and bypass what I believe to be our increasingly flawed ways of understanding morality and really what it means to be human. And so there's a prophetic witness of the church, but for us to really do that, we're going to have to be very cautious to not adopt the moral framework of the society around us, even as we share a lot of same understandings. It's just they come from very different places. It's great, Drew. So maybe to try to summarize today as a, a setup for some more practical thoughts next week, you know, another illustration that has come to mind recently is, is that morality today is like a big ball of thread that is all tangled and has, seems to have like 100 different starting and ending points. But actually what we're suggesting is that if you, if you grab a hold of any one thread 
and then follow it back through all of its different branchings back to its origin, you're actually going to only find uh, one of two origins for the most part in this culture, in this setting. And that is, again, the Judeo-Christian worldview and then this secular humanistic worldview. And that we're suggesting that all of our ethics, or at least the majority of our ethics and our morality today, finds its fountainhead in one of those two systems of belief. And the trick that Drew was explaining is that they've grown up quite close together, probably secularism in the shadow of the the Christian worldview. And so there's a lot of overlap, and it's in in those spaces of overlap, and probably partly in the church's uh, weaknesses and places where it's been complicit with injustice in the past that has caused many to start to migrate over to this other worldview that seems to be this champion of these, ultimately, these Christian virtues. And and so what we're doing is calling the church to awareness, calling us to think critically about the messaging, the messaging that's coming our way, calling us to evaluate the calls to action, to ensure that we are operating out of a a firmly Christian basis for ethics, and by that I would suggest the the life, the teachings, the ministry of Jesus as a starting point uh, for interpreting the rest of the biblical notion of ethics and morality, which is a whole different set of conversations. How do we look at the Old Testament, for instance, and and extract our notions of morality and ethics from it, but certainly distilled in the life of Jesus. So we'll leave you with that thought today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will pick up this conversation on ethics next week in Ideology.